last section of chapter 23. We just have one more chapter to go. And we'll be finished with Luke. Any children here? Kindergarten to second grade can be dismissed to children's church. Thanks, Steve. Luke chapter 23. And we're studying verses 50 to 56 today. We've seen Christ's sacrifice on the cross and now we follow Him into the tomb. And so we see this important emphasis today on the reality of Jesus' death, that He really did die a real death. Let's, let's, let's look at Luke chapter 23, verse 50. It says, Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Well, today we focus on the the death of Jesus, the fact that he truly died. And, you know, we as modern people, we have a difficult time with the topic of death. I mean, all people do in all cultures and all times. But I think it's particularly problematic for people like us who live in a modernized world. Um, In in many ways, uh, death uh, flies in the face of the very heart of what makes the modern world modern. Um, And so I think we are, in in many ways, in denial about death as a culture and and as a society. Because, you know, the core uh, doctrine of the statement of faith from the modern world, the core belief is that through human reason and technology and progress, we can control the world around us. I mean, to me, that's what is, is part of it, the heart of the modernized belief system. Uh, so, and, and, you know, it's, it, we, we, or it's all in us all the time. It, even if you wouldn't say, oh, I agree with that, and yet it's, it's pressing on us everywhere we go. I mean, you came in this, this building this morning, right? And it's nice and hot and sweaty out there, and it's cool in here because of air conditioning, because in the modern world we have the power to control weather, in a sense, inside the building. We we can control the climate and make it different in here uh, with the technology that we have. We can re-channel rivers. We can put a dam at the end of a river and turn a canyon into a reservoir through the power of modern technology. We can reshape the face of the earth. Uh, Through genetic engineering, we can engineer wheat and rice and other plants to make them more productive and uh, disease resistant. And so we even have this technological power over flora and fauna. Uh, Through the internet and through communications, we've shrunk the world. In a sense, space and time have contracted. We've controlled space and time. And now one person on this side of the world can talk to someone on the other side of the world in real time. Or we can uh, see each other via video in real time. And you can trade and do commerce. You can do online stock exchanges. You can play video games online with somebody who's on the other side of the world. It's an amazing uh, power that we have. And so, you know, that's, that's what we come to expect and to assume. And that kind of world leaves an imprint on our hearts. And we begin to assume that 
technology and human resources are omnipotent. And then we come up against death. (laughs) And death blows apart our belief system because we can't manage death. It's untamable. It's that wild beast that's out there in the forest and we haven't been able to capture it. We haven't been able to conquer it. Uh, And we try. You know, we have medicine and we have technology and certainly people today are living longer than they used to. And, you know, that's a blessing from God. Uh, But the other side of it is we recognize that the death rate in America is still, it's right around 100%, actually. Um, (laughs) Our mortality rate. (laughs) People are still uh, dying at those kinds of rates. Uh, So we haven't been able to conquer that yet. So that's why I said I think in many ways the modern approach then is to simply be in denial about death. That's how we deal with it is we push it away, we push it out, we don't want to think about it. We live in the moment. That's another part of modern life is very much a now focused. We don't think ahead. We don't look behind. It's just what I'm experiencing in the immediate instance. <clears throat> and we, we try to stave off as long as possible. We try to stay young. You know, we're into fitness and vitamins, and, which is all good stuff too. And, you know, Botox and, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> like I don't want to, I'm, I'm not aging. It's not happening to me. Death is not coming. And we try to stave it off. Uh, maybe you don't even like the fact that I'm talking about this. You're like, oh, I came to church. I was hoping to be uplifted. And he's talking about death. I mean, like, I need a latte. I mean, this is really tough. I, I don't want to think about this kind of thing. But whereas we are in denial about death, we see a Savior who did not shy away from death. He faced it. He went straight at it. He embraced it. And he conquered it. And so where we have fallen totally short of being able to deal with death, God has accomplished it. We have a God who died for us. A God who died. Which is, you know, try to understand that one. And so as we look at this text today, it's the story of Jesus dying for us. It's uh, a very um, in-depth, kind of frame-by-frame, walking through the fact that Jesus really, truly, literally, physically, actually died. And why that's important to our faith. Why that's such a critical part of what we believe. And so let's look at the story. It's in verse 50 of chapter 23. It says, Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not uh, consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. So here we have a new character in the story. We haven't met him before in Luke. His name is Joseph of Arimathea. And the reason we haven't met him is because really up to this point he's kind of been under the radar. He's on the council. So uh, what that means is the Sanhedrin. There's a 70-member group of men who were the leaders and, and really ultimate rulers for Judaism in those days. And so all of Israel, in a sense, was led by this council of 70 people. So this is a very powerful man. He would be like a senator today, a U.S. senator, or maybe he would be like a Supreme Court justice. Somebody at that high level who was very elite and part of the aristocracy. We know he was very wealthy because he has a tomb cut out of the rock. Uh, In those days, most people were buried in the ground or in common graves or whatever, but some people had the resources to have an actual tomb carved out of the rock and into the rock. So this is a very wealthy, powerful person who up to this point 
apparently had faith in Christ. He was responding to the message of Jesus. It says he was good and upright, that he didn't agree with the decision to condemn Jesus, and notice it says he was waiting for the kingdom of God. So here's a man who has believed the message of Jesus, but it's kind of on the down low for now. And we're going to come back to him. So sort of keep him in the back of your mind. We're going to circle around back to him at the end. Uh, and anyway, he goes to Pilate in a very bold move, probably a politically risky move for him. He says, I want the body of Jesus. Give it to me. And he takes Jesus down and puts him in his tomb. And notice the process here. We're taken through the burial of Jesus in painfully uh, uh, sort of accurate detail. Look at this story. Verse 53, they took it down, took down the body, wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. So here we have typical burial in those days. And you know, when, when people died in those days, it was different. They didn't have funeral homes. You were the funeral home. Your family was. You had to take care of it. And so when somebody died, the usual process was the lament would go out, somebody would cry out, and the lamenting would begin, and people really lamented back then. It was very expressive, and people wept and cried and hit themselves and almost lost control sometimes. They let it out. And then they would take the body in the home and typically the women would take it and they would wash the body. They would put uh, spices and perfumes on it. And this isn't really you know great stuff to talk about, but it was to keep the smell down as the body would be quickly decomposing. This is a hot climate. And so that process would take place quickly. And then they would cover the body with linen. They would wrap it up. And they would carry it from there once the family had grieved and expressed themselves, typically on the same day. You know, uh, in Islamic culture, uh, the person is buried on the same day that they die. And, and that really reflects this Middle Eastern kind of background. So probably it would have been the same day. And the family would take the body, put it on a, a litter or a, a stretcher of some sort, and they would carry it. And they, there was no coffin, there was no box, they didn't do that. They just had the body wrapped and they would carry it to the grave site where they would dig the hole and they would put the body in the hole and they would cover it themselves. And so, it's good to remember that. It was a very hands-on process. They were very in touch with the death of this loved one. And again, think about how we do it so differently in a modernized world today. Death is so sanitized. You know, Usually someone dies in a hospital room, which is a very uh, technologically heavy sort of context. And then when they, they die, they maybe give us a little time with the person in the body, but then we leave after maybe half an hour, an hour, and then it just kind of it's taken care of, right? And, we, and it's just how we do it. And so I think that's part of what keeps us distant from the process. Imagine if you had to do all that yourself. I mean, and so they were very much more connected with this. And so we see Jesus here. Look, there's the ritual. He's taken down. He's wrapped in cloth. He's carried to the tomb. The women are getting the spices ready. Unfortunately, it's almost the Sabbath, so they don't have time to finish that part of the process. But, but we're taken frame by frame through this. It's a, you know, this part of the story is very gritty. It's very 
earthy and visceral as we look at how Jesus' body is taken down. You can almost imagine it, can't you, in your mind? You can see them unhooking Him from the cross and His limp body and they have to carry Him and wrap Him up and some guys had to lift... You know, bodies are heavy. They had to lift a body and they had to carry it for some distance and put it in a tomb. It's a very, I don't know, hands-on story. And I think it, it was sort of shocking to me as I was delving into this text because so many times we romanticize the death of Jesus and we spiritualize it. And we have to remember he really, actually, physically, tangibly died. And this story brings us through that process to remind us of it. It wasn't like uh, you know Yoda in Star Wars. I don't know if you watched I love Star Wars. You know, the last Star Wars movie where Yoda finally dies. When Yoda dies, he just disappears. It's like, and he, you know, they do some special effect where Yoda just evaporates. And the, the blanket that was on him sort of fades. And Yoda's just gone. And he enters the Force world or, or whatever. He enters, um, <clears throat> I'm not advocating the Force world as a worldview for you. I'm just, but that's not how it was with Jesus. It's not like he died and just kind of went, you know. He had to take him down and carry him over there. And, and I emphasize that because, um, again, I think that's something that we lose sight of. We, we distance ourselves. We're in denial about it. But God wasn't. God went through the process. He fully embraced it. And there have been different groups down through church history that have denied the physical death of Jesus. In the early church, there was a heretical group. They were a Gnostic group, and they were called the Docetists or Docetists. And uh, that comes from the Greek word darkeo, which means to seem or to appear. And they believed that Jesus didn't actually die. He only seemed to die or appeared to die. <clears throat> and, but he couldn't have died because God couldn't have died because that would be bad. And you know, God was spirit and he was above the material world and all that kind of Gnostic dualistic stuff. And they believed that Jesus didn't actually die. Uh, today, uh, uh, Islam teaches that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. In fact, it's in the Koran. Um, you know, I don't know if we've ever done this before, but may I read a portion of the Koran to you? <laughs> uh, not because I believe it's the Word of God, which it isn't, but I just want to, would you to hear what the Koran teaches on this. It says, They that say and boast, We killed Christ Jesus, the Son of Mary, the Messenger of Allah. But they killed Him not, nor crucified Him. But it was made to appear to them, for of a surety they killed Him not. And so, according to the Koran, Jesus wasn't killed on the cross. He actually didn't die on the cross. And the theory in Islam, you know, you look at different people. One theory is that uh, Judas Iscariot looked a lot like Jesus, that they were kind of like twins almost, and people confused them. And it was Judas Iscariot who was crucified, not Jesus. And Jesus was taken up to heaven sort of, again, in a Yoda-like fashion, sort of taken straight up. Um, So, you know... There's billions of people in the world today who believe specifically Jesus did not die on the cross. But the teaching of all of the Gospels is that Christ really, actually died. And it's not just Luke, it's Matthew, it's Mark, it's John, it's Paul. In fact, I'd like you to look at another text. Uh, Turn over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's on page 1139 in the Pew Bible. This is an important verse because it uh, is one of the earliest summaries of the gospel that we have, the gospel message. What is the gospel? Well, here's Paul summarizing what the earliest church believed and proclaimed as the gospel. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, Now brothers, verse 1, 
I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. So he's going to tell us what the gospel is. So what is it? We'll jump down to verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. So this is the, this is the key message. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. So isn't that interesting? As Paul gives this kind of like bullet point summary... I'm going to give you the core elements of the Gospel. Here's the bullet points. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried. And He rose again. So it's kind of, again, strange. Why this emphasis on the burial of Jesus? Why would this be um, an indispensable part of the Gospel proclamation so that if you don't have it, you don't have the Gospel if you don't believe in the actual death of Christ? Or think about the Apostles' Creed that we recited earlier, right? You know, it's, Christians have recited this. Catholics, Orthodox, Protestants have recited this creed for centuries and millennia. And we stand up and say Jesus Christ was crucified, dead, and buried. And so why this emphasis on the death of Christ? Why walk us through the death of Jesus step by step in such graphic detail? Why drive this point home? Why are we talking about this this morning? Well, I think the reason why according to, and we'll look in Hebrews here in a moment, is because it's through the death of Christ that we can have hope of victory over sin and death. That we don't have a Savior who went halfway. We've got an all-the-way Savior who went all the way to bear our sins and all of the consequences of that. Jesus didn't just sort of drop out of heaven and stand on a mountain and say, okay, guys... Now, get along with each other and stop fighting and be nice. You know, like a parent, you know, yelling in the back of the car, hey, stop it back there. You know, it's not like Jesus just came down and said, stop it! Now be good and be nice to each other and I'm out of here. And went back up to heaven. He didn't just teach us. He died for us and He went all the way to embrace our humanity. He really became a human. He really lived in this world and He really died on a cross to enter in fully into everything it means to live as a human being in a fallen world. Um, There's a saying in the early church, among the early church fathers, and it went like this, what is not assumed cannot be redeemed. What is not assumed cannot be redeemed. In other words, for something to be redeemed, for God to redeem it, God had to assume it and take it on, which means He had to go all the way. This is an all-the-way Savior, not a halfway Savior. I mean, think about what death is. You know, why do people die? Maybe it's another way we could look at it. And when I say why do people die, I don't mean medically or scientifically. I mean, theologically, why do people die? And when we look again at the Bible, the answer we see is that death is a consequence of sin. It's a fallout from sin. It says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. So when we sin, what we earn as a paycheck from that is death. Death is a judgment from God. It it wasn't the way God intended for human beings to be. Do you remember the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? How death entered the picture. It wasn't there in the beginning. God made this beautiful garden. He made these people, Adam and Eve. And everything was right with the world. They were right with God. They were in obedience and love and worship of Him. And they loved Him and He loved them. And Adam and Eve loved each other. They weren't bickering. They didn't give each other the silent treatment. They didn't you know, yell at each other. They weren't fighting. They were in harmony. 
And they were in harmony with the environment around them, the world that God made. And God put two trees in the garden. One tree was the tree of life. He planted it, right? And now they could eat from this tree and live forever. So as long as they lived in harmony with God and obeyed Him and loved Him, then they had life forever and ever and ever. That was the plan. That's the way it was supposed to work. But then God put another tree in the garden. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that tree symbolized that which belongs to God alone. The the rights and prerogatives of being God. And God said, you can't have that. You can live with me and you can love me and you can be part of my creation, but if you touch that tree and eat from it, on that day you shall surely, what did God say? Die. And so death was the consequence of human beings saying, I'm not happy with just being a a creature. I want to be like the Creator. I want to be God. I want to have that knowledge and those prerogatives that alone belong to God. And so human beings cross that line to put, like, like Satan did, to put themselves forward as God. And they took of the fruit, and on that day death entered the world. And so that's what we know today, is we know death. And to us it seems natural. But it's not natural. I mean, it's natural in the sense that we all die, but it's not natural in the sense that it's the way it was made by God in the beginning. It wasn't the plan. And that's why when, when somebody dies in your life and you go through a grieving process and people come to you and you know people are well-meaning they don't mean to say the wrong things but people just don't know what to say you know and you see someone grieving and people say things like you know it's all for the better you know it's okay Um, uh, this is all a natural process and we just have to accept it and you're like you're trying to be nice but no it's not natural it's not acceptable And it's true, it's not. It's not the way it should be. And there should be something in us that recoils against death. We shouldn't just accept it like, oh, no big deal, it's part of life. You know, rain and sunshine and and clouds. No, no, no. It's wrong. Because it wasn't how God made the world. But the amazing story again of the Bible is not that God created the world and saw us fall and then said, oh, well, that's, that's your problem. I told you not to do it. Well, it's over now. We have a God of mercy and love who chose freely, didn't have to, but chose freely to enter into this messed up world and to begin a plan to save us from our sins and even to save us from death, which is the ultimate consequence of sin. And so God started making His promises like we've been reading about in the book of Genesis with Abraham. And it culminated in God Himself becoming a human being. He took on our humanity He took on flesh and blood. Jesus was a God-man. And He went all the way to the cross. So we have a God who died for us. (laughs) It's amazing. You think about it. In fact, let me just read a passage with you that is a great text on this. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. It's on page uh, 1185 in your pew Bible. Hebrews chapter 2. We were in Hebrews last week as well. Why did Jesus die? Why is that so important that He died? Well, here it is. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. The writer of Hebrews says, We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because He suffered death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. Jesus tasted death for me so that I might feast on life through Him. 
Christ came and entered my death and my sin so that I could enter into His righteousness and His eternal life. You know, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. And so that's, that life begins with the forgiveness of our sins, but it has to culminate in eternal existence through Jesus. And so Jesus came not only to save us from our sins, but also the consequences of sins, including death. And we get this really emphasized down in verse 14. This is a great verse. Talk about a triumphant verse. Since the children, that's us, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. And so Jesus, he didn't deny death, he didn't run from it, he went up to it, he wrestled with it. It's like I can see Jesus and, and death grappling, and they went under the cold waves of death, and we watched as three days it was still. And then out of the water came Christ holding the carcass of death in His hand. He's conquered it and triumphed over it. And so we worship a Savior. That's why we call Him the Savior. Because He came to save us from our sins and to even save us from death. I mean, that's again the radical message of Christianity. This is why the most basic Christian confession, even before the Apostles' Creed was ever written, the basic Christian confession that the early believers used was, Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And so that being a Christian is not just, let's be a good person. I mean, you know, if, if that's all Christianity is, is more rules, and you know, I've got a big problem. I can't even keep the rules I have, you know, let alone the new ones. I, I don't need more rules about how to be a better person, because I'm not a better person. I'm a sinful man. I can't even keep the things God wants me to do. I don't need more teaching. I need a Savior. I need a Savior. I need a Savior who is Lord, who has conquered death and risen from the dead. And so we have to embrace Christ as Savior and Lord. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord, as your, your hope of salvation. That's what the message of the Christian church always was. I was at a, uh, many of you know, there was a funeral here this week. In our church, it was a really, it was a tough week. We, uh, we had a funeral for a, a little four-year-old girl who passed away. And um, it was a different kind of experience preparing for that funeral on Friday and writing this sermon for Sunday. You know, it's like, all right, Lord, what are you trying to say here? You know, knowing that this text was in front of us and having to go through thinking about a, a parents who lost their daughter and thinking about a God who let his own son die. You know, it just was an interesting kind of uh, thought process for me. And as I went to that funeral, you know, I don't know how people who don't have the Lord do it. I, I just don't know. How do you lose someone, especially that? Like the most horrible kind of situation you can imagine, the loss of a child. How do you do that without the Lord? I just don't know. It, there's nothing but despair and hopelessness. But if we have Christ, yes, it's painful, it's awful, but there's a hope that this death is not the final word. And that there's victory over the grave. And so we grieve, but what does it say in 1 Thessalonians? Not as the world grieves. We grieve in a different kind of way. It's a, it's a Christian grieving. It's hopeful grieving. 
It's grieving with faith. Believing that Christ died and that Christ was buried and that Christ rose for our salvation. And so we worship a Savior, not just a teacher, not just a moralist. We worship one who broke the spine of death so that we could be saved. Now that requires something of us. And our part in the process is that we have to, we have to receive through faith Jesus. And, and this is where I'd like to take us and just kind of end this talk here by taking us back to Joseph of Arimathea. Remember we mentioned him in the beginning? What a moment for Joseph of Arimathea to walk up to Pilate. And what does he say? He says, I want the body of Jesus. That's what we have to do. We have to be able to stand up and say, I want the death of Jesus for me. Give him to me. And that's risky. I imagine that once Joseph of Arimathea did that, it could have had a very negative effect on his political career. Because now he comes out of the closet, out of the shadows of being kind of a secret disciple, and he comes forward and he says very publicly, I want Jesus. And I'm going to honor him by putting him in a rich man's tomb. And now he's out in the open. And that's what it requires to follow Christ. Maybe some of us are in the background right now with our faith. You know, we're here in church and church is, is green and so we're green. Then we go out in the world and the world is, you know, <laughs> yellow and so we turn yellow or, or, or brown or red or whatever color group we're with and whatever the, the vibe is of that group, we kind of fit in to blend in. But at some point to follow Christ, you have to stand up and say, no matter where I am, I want Christ and I'm going to follow him. You know, imagine if you were uh, hanging out with your friends, whoever your friends are, and the kind of people you in- enjoy spending time with. And maybe people were talking about things that they really wanted. Like some guy was talking about a new car or a new boat. Or, you know, I'd like a new kitchen in my house, and I'd like to have this kind of wood for the cabinets. And, oh, I'd love to do that someday. And people talking about all the different things they want. And imagine if you in, in that group of people at work or wherever were to say, you know what I really want? I really want Jesus and more of Jesus. You know, what would, your, what would those people say? They'd probably be like, oh dear, uh, you know, uncomfortable, religious wacko, you know, somebody went and got religion, ooh, you know. But you know what? Whatever. Who cares? <laughs> These are life and death matters. This is life and death, literally. This is heaven or hell for all eternity. This is God or rejection of God and His gift in Jesus. And if God has gone so far for us that He would send His own Son to the cross and we can't even stand up and say, okay, I want that. We don't have to do anything to be saved. We just have to receive by faith Christ. And we can't even be bold enough to do that. And we're so filled with unbelief. I mean, is there any other expectation but that we will be damned forever in hell if we would reject the gift of God's Son? And so I guess that's the challenge for me, and, and I put it out there for you, but I'm really thinking of my own life, is am I playing the hide-in-the-crowd kind of thing, or am I willing to step forward and step up and say, I, I want Christ, and I don't care what anyone thinks, Christ is the Savior, and to be willing to tell that to others. And that's hard for us, because you know, we're in New England, and we're private, and we keep things to ourselves, and we don't say things, especially about our beliefs. That's very private. That's what we're told. And so we're going to have to be countercultural. We're going to have to push back and say, you know, 
let me tell you where I'm coming from and talk about Jesus. Uh, you don't have to be threatening or pushy or preachy or obnoxious to do that, but you do have to do it, and so do I. And I think that's what I was challenged by here, that we have to be able to say, I want the body of Christ. And you know, I'm thinking, here we are, communion table, what a perfect text for a communion Sunday, because we have these uh, emblems of Jesus' death. Even here at communion, the Lord gave us this this rite, this ritual that we practice on a regular basis that again reminds us that He really died, that He really went all the way to the cross and all the way to death to save us from death and from sin. And we have this bread, this matzah bread that we eat. This is like the matzah bread they ate at the Passover meal. And it symbolizes the body of Jesus that was broken for us. And we have this cup that we drink with this fruit of the vine in it. And this symbolizes the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. And so even at communion, on a regular basis, we're reminding ourselves that Jesus went all the way for us to save us. And so that He is our Savior. And and it calls on us to go all the way for Him in response, to to resemble His faithfulness by how we respond to Him. And so this communion table is open to anybody here. Even if you're not a member of our church, you can share with us. As long as you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, uh, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you haven't stepped forward in a sense and claimed Christ for yourself, we just invite you to participate with us this morning. Just observe. Just observe what happens. And we say that not to make people feel like they're second-class citizens here, but, but simply because...